Hello and welcome to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan and thank you for joining us once again. Special thanks also to our new Patreon supporters this week. So we have Emily Mitchell, Zoe and Mark Williams. Thank you guys. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, then you can head over to our page at patreon.com forward slash Seeing Red Podcast. Or if that's too much effort, then you can just Google Patreon Seeing Red and you will find us. I love that you've given them a lazy option as well. Well, who doesn't love a lazy yeah, option? Yeah, exactly. So this week's case is part one of a two-parter. And the reason for that really is that I can honestly say I've never conducted as much research Jesus, as I have done for this one. I've actually researched. Whoa! Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I always you do all, quite a thorough you job. Do. But this is this has involved reading a book, watching a kind of ITV you can drama. Read. <laughs> I can read lots of newspaper articles. Mm-hmm. So it's a case that's been kind of written about extensively. As I said, it's a case that was dramatised for TV, mm-hmm. and it's also a case that's divided opinion. Um, and it's also a bit of a controversial one for us because we are heading to Australia. Mm. And I don't think Bethan's going to be too happy about that. Nope, I'm not. Being the purist <laughs> that you are. But then I am the one who wrote and investigated the Elena Hara case, so I can't really complain, can that, I? Yeah, that was a real real bad moment in our own uh, history, wasn't it? Yeah. It's an in- like you said though, this is a controversial case, and I think our opinions are quite split between the pair of us, so it's an interesting one. Yeah. Mm, so, okay, so justify why we're going to Australia. Well, <laughs> um, I'll come on to kind of exactly who we're covering uh, for the benefit of our listeners in a moment. Bethan knows, but we've kind of talked about it, or I've mentioned it over the months and said I really want to cover this case and you've always kind of said no um, because it happened in Australia but the actual victims in this case are British Um, so they are from the UK they just happen to be traveling in Australia when the crime that we're going to be covering was committed. I feel like this is you setting yourself up to do a 17-part dramatization about Madeleine McCann. I think that would be fine too. (sighs) In the same vein of this, but I don't, I don't really want to cover Maddie McCann because there's just too much Yeah, there. that would be very difficult. Yeah, and I think other people have done a better job than we could ever do, so... Yeah, I do get your reasons for covering this case, yeah, and it I is think also it's a fair. really interesting case. Yeah. So, I'm going to mix things up a bit this week and start today's story by reading a victim impact statement, which was read to Darwin's Supreme Court before the defendant in this case was sentenced to a minimum of 28 years behind bars. And it's quite a long victim impact statement, so you'll have to bear with me, but I think it's quite an important way of kind of setting some context. Wow. The magnitude of the impact that this crime has had on me, my relationships, family and friends is impossible to convey in this short statement. On the night this crime occurred, I thought I was going to be raped and murdered. I was terrified and extremely distressed when I was hiding as I thought I would never see my family again and no one would know what happened to Pete and me. I also felt that Pete was very close but that I couldn't do anything to help him. This made me feel helpless and guilty. I have suffered the loss of the person who knew me the best and loved me the most. Pete was the person who encouraged me to achieve and to be strong and a better person. He was the one I was to travel the world with and share new experiences. I was with Pete all of my adult life. I was 22 when I met him. We looked forward to visiting new places and sharing experiences with each other. In losing Pete, I have lost some of the opportunity to share family life with the Falconios, such as shared Christmases and family dinners. 
Pete was in the prime of his life, professionally successful, fit and healthy, loved and popular. This crime ended our dreams of travel, marriage and children, a future. I never imagined not being with him and not sharing my life with him. Much of my life has been closed down since this happened. I have had to delay university studies because of the requirement to travel to Australia to give evidence on two occasions and this has involved me being absent from the UK for extended periods. There have been related difficulties for me in terms of employment. I've been able only to take employment which did not involve dealing with the public as people's curiosity has made my life very difficult. Prior to this, I had been working with an international travel agency, but I could not maintain that employment because of the notoriety associated with this crime. I have also been unable to make long-term commitments to employment due to the need for me to travel to Australia. There have been substantial financial implications as well. Some aspects of the investigative process were hurtful and insensitive, as well as causing me considerable anxiety at a time when I had been through an experience that can only be described as horrific. The massive intrusion of the media into my life has had devastating effects. I have had to move house eight times. I have experienced being on the train and seeing pictures of my face on the front page of people's newspapers. It is all so invasive. I have been watched and followed. My mother was very distressed with all of the media coverage and the impact it had on her and me. People have to be wary of becoming friends with me because they might find themselves in the paper. This means forming new friendships and maintaining existing ones is a continuing challenge. I have visible scars from the physical injuries I received on that night. They are fading with time. The emotional scars, however, remain. I am stronger, wiser, less naive. I am sceptical, untrusting, fearful and heartbroken. It is lonely being me. Now, if you haven't already guessed, uh, these are the words of Joanne Lees, a woman whose boyfriend was shot and killed in cold blood at the side of the road. A woman who literally had to run for her life as she was chased by a gun-wielding maniac deep into Australia's vast outback on a dark night in July 2001. A woman who is very lucky to be alive to tell her tale, and this is her story. I think that's a really interesting way to start because I think it's um, it really sets the tone of how this has affected her and reminds you as a listener that um, the impact it's had on her. Yeah, sort of listening to that is quite chilling and it's quite emotive. So that was really interesting. And I think it's one of those cases where people kind of think there was one victim that night mm-hmm. a guy disappeared presumed dead um and people kind of forget that joanne lees was was absolutely a victim as well so um so yeah that was partly why i wanted to to kind of start that way and with part two i'm going to be starting with another victim impact statement so mm-hmm. um so yeah we'll, we'll kind of have another Incredibly another bit to read poetic that was then having the the mirroring each other yeah So Joanne Lees was born on the 25th of September in 1973 and grew up in Huddersfield, a large market and university town in West Yorkshire with a population of approximately 160,000 people. Joanne was brought up by a mother and for most of her early life it was just the two of them. Her mother worked hard to support them and money was tight. Joanne remembers seeing her mother crying at the kitchen table surrounded by piles of bills as she struggled to make ends meet and consequently Joanne grew up more quickly than her peers. She was popular but she knew that life could be tough and as a result she was independent from an early age. 
She knew what she wanted out of life and she was determined to get it. Just before Joanne hit her teens, her mother married a man called Vincent and the couple went on to have a baby, a boy named Sam who Joanne was devoted to. Joanne's mother had travelled extensively in her youth and would often regale her with tales of faraway adventures and this did inspire Joanne who dreamed of travel. So, not surprisingly, she began working in the travel industry for an international travel agent soon after finishing college in the early 90s. In the summer of 1996, 22-year-old Joanne's world was about to collide with that of local man Peter Falconio, a 23-year-old undergraduate who was home from university for the summer break. Joanne met Peter in a nightclub in their hometown of Huddersfield and was immediately attracted to this tall, half-Italian man with dark brown hair and olive skin. Their eyes locked across the dance floor and Joanne remembers thinking she knew they were meant to be together from that very moment. Isn't that sweet? that's quite nice. Peter was the third child of four brothers. Brought up in Huddersfield by Mum Joan and Dad Luciano, Peter shared Joanne's love of travelling and over the course of that hot summer, the two very quickly became close. The pair enjoyed a long-distance relationship with Joanne working in Huddersfield and Peter studying for his construction planning degree at Brighton University. They would see each other as often as they could, Joanne travelling down to Brighton and Peter travelling back up to the north frequently. In 1997, as the relationship progressed, the couple moved in together in Brighton and made a life for themselves on the south coast. Joanne loved the vibrant city of Brighton and she and Peter made it their adopted home. In the summer of 2000, Peter graduated and the pair decided they would go travelling before Peter took up work in the construction industry. They'd been saving money and planned on heading to the Far East in November of that year before making their way to Australia. Not something I've ever done, travelling. No, I've not really... That's sort of bit of the world as well. Yeah, I've never ventured that far. It looks beautiful, but I'm always worried about the food. So, bidding their friends and family farewell as they set off on the 15th of November for Nepal, Joanne and Peter were excited at what lay ahead. They had made some loose plans in terms of where they wanted to visit at the start of their trip, but had deliberately left things quite open so they could just see where their adventure took them. That sounds really good fun. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's quite brave. They sound like a fun couple, don't they? I think it's really brave to Mm, do that as well. Definitely. So before landing in Sydney on the 16th of January in 2001, the couple had spent two months visiting Nepal, Singapore, Thailand and Cambodia. In her book, No Turning Back, Joanne describes their time in these countries so eloquently, far better than I could do here, so I'm not even going to try. Um, but if you're interested in travelling and if you're interested in Joanne's story, then I can thoroughly recommend that book. Um, and it's the only official account of what happened later on in their travels, and it is quite a harrowing mm. read at times. I feel like, though, you're saying to people if you want to go travelling, but then you're also telling them what happened to them, so it's kind of... Yeah. Is it going to yeah. put them off? But there's so many horror stories, aren't yeah. there? People that go travelling and stuff happens. It's and only because you only ever hear about the bad things. Yeah, and people are just quite often in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a freak accident. Events collide and yeah. there's nothing they could have done. Definitely. As is the case here. So waking up in Sydney on their first full day on the 17th of January, Joanne was disappointed to see grey skies. This was January after all and Sydney should really have been in the height of summer at this point. 
And although she doesn't mention this in her book, I do wonder if this was some sort of foreboding omen to the events that would unfold in this country just six months later. Mm. Well, I don't know if that's me thinking too deeply, but I do kind of think, yeah, was that some bad omen that they shouldn't yeah. be there? I I don't know, but I do imagine it's like quite dramatic in the sort of dramatisation as well, that it's not this bright, sunny, mm. what is it, pathetic fallacy they call it, isn't it, where it's the weather... Oh, symbolises the mood of the yeah. of the case. Yeah. That reminds me of when you went on holiday and then it rained pretty much your entire holiday and you came back and you were Was that when fuming. I went to Spain? Yeah, yeah you'd I gone to Spain. Yeah. Mm. yeah, it wasn't happening. How was your holiday, Matt? Mm, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the only reason you kind of go to places well, like that. Well, it is, isn't it? It is yeah. frustrating. So you can understand why she would be disappointed to mm. kind of wake up that morning and just think, oh. And oh. it was unexpected. Mm-hmm. Joanne and Peter spent some time exploring the city and eventually found some shared accommodation in Bondi, close to the beach. The couple planned on spending some time in Australia and their intention was to get jobs to support them during their stay. Joanne quickly found employment as a sales assistant in a bookstore called Dimux on George Street in Sydney. She loved books and the store was run by a group of young book enthusiasts with whom Joanne got on well. Peter, fascinated by architecture, was hoping to secure work in the construction industry. However, I think there was some kind of problem with his visa that prevented it. So Mm -hmm. I guess there's different visas, which mean you can only do certain jobs. Mm. Um, So unfortunately, he couldn't do that. And he ended up taking up work at a company called January Design, which sounds more exciting than it is because they were actually an office furniture installation company. Mm. I mean, she's kind of still doing something where it's a bit out of the ordinary and something a bit fun. And his is a bit of a busman's holiday, really. I feel a bit sorry for him. Yeah, I think he, she landed on her feet yeah, from you know, the way like I a, saw it. a waiter in like a beachside bar or something. But I think it was just a case of kind of getting any yeah, jobs they, they could, money. really. Yeah. Mm. So the couple settled into their new lives in Sydney, soon making friends. And the sociable pair would often be out exploring the Sydney nightlife, usually separately with their respective work friends, though they would usually come together as one big group towards the end of the night. So nothing unusual there, whether that's happening in Sydney or in their hometown. It's what people do, isn't it? It is, but I find it a bit strange when they're away as a couple. I would be I'd be a bit un, find it a bit unusual if someone was on holiday and they didn't spend time with their partner and to me this is a holiday I know they've been See, away I don't think for so. quite I th- a while yeah I but... think it's traveling I think they're almost kind of living and working in Sydney they'd be in a routine yeah so you're not they are you're doing fun stuff every day yeah than, yeah so I think that's pretty normal to be fair Mm. So um, they weren't out every night though So they always had Monday nights at the shared flat in Bondi In front of the television And they were lodging with a man from the Netherlands And his five-year-old daughter And years later Joanne would reflect fondly On the time they spent together watching television Sharing stories and playing with the young girl So she had really fond memories of Mm. her time in Bondi So whilst in Sydney Joanne grew close to a man called Nick Riley You might remember this Bethan if you kind of know a bit about this case Mm. He was a friend of her colleague Tim's and the two developed a playful friendship Just like us not. Oh, gross. <laughs> Jeez. Someone uh, did think that we were a couple oh, um, once. They, they, yeah, they thought we were a couple when they'd first started listening to us. 
So at uh. first they only spent time together as part of a large group of friends, but soon their bond deepened and they crossed the line from flirty banter to sexual attraction. Naughty, naughty. Joanne and Nick slept together on two occasions and much was made of this so-called affair when Joanne later found herself in court when she was there to achieve justice for Peter. It is an affair. I don't think so. Developed into something and they slept together. But in reality, it was a brief fling and she says once that line was crossed, any kind of sexual attraction, any spark just fizzled out. But... They still slept together. Yeah, they twice. slept together on two occasions, but I wouldn't really call that an affair. I think that's an affair because it's not a one-off. It's not she met someone random. Yeah. Not that that's the crime, and this isn't a crime anyway, but I don't know. I think it was a mistake. I think personally it was a bit of a mistake. Mm. Um, and she loved Peter and she knew that she wanted to be with him for the rest of her life. And she kind of thought, yeah, maybe it's just a moment of madness. We're on the other mm, side of the world. Sunshine. Sunshine. Yeah. yeah mm. And maybe her head was turned briefly. Um, but she decided to keep that secret from Peter, which I think was probably the right thing to do. She kind of really? thought, actually, it was oh, a mistake. We're I'm learning move about you, it. Mark. <laughs> no, not at all. I think. I don't know. Again, I'd be really interested what our, what mm, our listeners think yeah. of this. So, yeah, I don't judge her for it, but clearly Bethan does. Yeah. <laughs> so when it came out during the trial, when the defence tried to use it against Joanne, obviously they were trying to kind of discredit her as a witness. The press seized on it. So when it was kind of mm. made public, um, and they really tried to make her out as this sort of harlot, this kind of slag. And as I say, oh, I really slag. don't think oh that, I really don't think that she was. Do you know? Oh, no, I don't think it makes her a harlot or a slag. I just think, but yeah, you, I you do, still think it's. I still moral, think it's like bad, it is, and yeah. I do think it's bad that she didn't confess but mm. Mm. we're all different aren't we mm. and I, you know i personally think obviously we all make mistakes whatever they might be they might not be like this but we all make mistakes and i think we are just lucky that we don't become infamous and mm. have the press kind of empty out our closets and this public. is exactly it though does is if it was just a normal person going about their normal life and then they got home who knows she may have told him yeah. so yeah Putting this dalliance behind her, Joanne and Peter started looking for a camper van in May of 2001. Their intention was to use it to travel around Australia. They knew that it would be cheaper and more luxurious than buses and hostels, which was the kind of alternative. And the couple began to excitedly look around for their dream vehicle. It wasn't long before Peter found a burnt orange VW combi van, which was being sold by a couple from Huddersfield. They'd kind of been travelling around Aww. in it and then finished with it so they were selling it yeah that's a bit of a link to home as well yeah so i think that kind of felt like a good omen Mm. and they agreed a price and they bought it and joanne nicknamed the combi taz because it had tasmanian number plates and peter who was quite handy under the bonnet spent many hours ensuring the vehicle would be roadworthy for their travels ahead in anticipation for their extensive time on the road, the couple took the van out for many day trips away with friends and Joanne talks fondly of entertaining her friends in the van, cooking lunches and making tea. I could see you doing that. Mm, I'd like to have a little camper van and I'd go I'd love around. a camper yeah, van. Yeah, I could do that. I think they're brilliant. And a it's little a great fry idea up if in you're the morning. And, yeah. If this van is a rockin', don't come a knockin'. Um, Towards the end of June, Joanne and Peter left their respective jobs and they set off in their new home. They explored many towns as they headed north from Sydney, stopping off in Alice Springs along the way. 
They had no set agenda or final destination. Their only plan was to head north. I think that's just great, isn't it? To mm. just be like, we've got no commitments. We can just kind of do what we want. Let's They're just They're definitely north. cooler than I am because I would be wanting to plan this to oh, the me too. minute. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd plan all of the fun out of it. Oh my God. Sure. No, it would still be fun, but we would not have just gone with the flow. I think I can be spontaneous, but... It needs to be planned. You went in. to like randomly went to New York once, didn't you? Yeah. Just did it that weekend or something. So you are more spontaneous yeah. than me. Yeah, that's true. Mm. And it rained all weekend then. Oh, it was Thanksgiving. No. I remember Thanksgiving Day Parade. It just rained all day. <laughs> Um, anyway, so this was a journey that would see the couple cross the Tropic of Capricorn. Don't ask me what the fuck that is. Some kind of latitudinal line or something. Yeah. Um, so they travelled, literally, they'd be travelling thousands of miles through the vast outback of Australia. Do you know what the Tropic of Capricorn is, Bethan? I know it is like a line on the globe. Yeah. That's kind of my limit of my... I feel like maybe it I don't know separates why you put it the northern and southern hemisphere. Because I read it and it sounded great. That's the equator, Mark. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So um, at this point, obviously, I'm not very good at geography, but I wanted to kind of give everybody a bit of a lesson because the outback forms the backdrop to this case. And it's almost like a central character to the story. And you're going to love this, Bethan, a metaphor for the emptiness, loneliness and isolation that Joanne felt on the night she and Peter were attacked. You've written this so beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. It's almost like the David Kelly episode when I did a poem. Oh, Christ. I think just reading a victim impact <laughs> statement is a bit better than a poem. Yeah, yeah I love that poem. <laughs> you did. Which had basically nothing to do with the story other than it <laughs> was it was set where he'd story. kind of killed himself or was murdered. We're not sure. Oh, murdered. But um But don't you think that's a good metaphor? No, I think the this vast is, um... emptiness of the outback for how yeah. she'd have been feeling on that night, which obviously we'll come on to the events of mm. that night. In and a it moment. does mirror her victim impact statement quite oh, a lot. Yeah. This. It yeah. really does. Not loving what happened, obviously, but yeah. Have quite, some fun before it gets yeah, terrible until it gets really bit, heavy, and then, it's going to get terrifying in a moment. And then we'll finish. <laughs> so I just wanted to spend a bit of time setting the scene in a bit more detail. So if you're not really kind of familiar with the outback in Australia, it is described as the vast remote heartland of Australia. And if you picture the country, it's almost like a circle, isn't it? A bit of a kind of weird circle. Um, but you'll notice with Australia that all of the major cities are pretty much located on the edge of the country, um, on the coast. So you've got Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Darwin. There's probably loads of others as well. Mm. All of those cities, they're all ones that we all know of. They're all quite big. They're all dotted around the kind of outside of it. Mm. So there isn't an awful lot in the middle, it has to be said. Um, you might have heard of the bush. Um, so the bush is kind of similar to the outback, but the bush would have a population, albeit quite a sparse population. Mm -hmm. The outback is basically void of people, so you can go literally hundreds of miles without seeing any civilization. Mm. And it extends from the northern to the southern coastlines of Australia, and it has different regions and different kind of climatic zones. So it's just this kind of vast landscape that's a lot of emptiness there. Mm. I guess. So yeah, different kind of climatic zones. It can be tropical, it can be monsoonal, it can be arid, it can have a temperate climate. So yeah, it's so vast. Mm. And there are a number of highways that kind of cut through the outback and you can go literally hundreds of miles between petrol stations and hundreds of miles without seeing any other vehicles as well, which is just really weird, isn't it? Mm. Especially coming from somewhere like the UK where 
you can drive from one side to the other in a day if you needed to. Yeah, in half a day. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I really hope that I've been able to explain what the Outback is and do it justice because, one, I know we have quite a lot of Australian listeners, but two, it's just so alien to anything that we are used mm. to in the UK. And in fact, the Outback alone is five times as big as the whole mm. of the UK. That is the scale of yeah. it. And the population would be like probably one thousandth of what it is here. Mm. So yeah, it's a, you know, obviously it's a, a unique place. But Definitely, yeah. Geography lesson over. I didn't think it was too bad as a lesson. Quiz at the end. Oh. Pop quiz. Why are you just saying things? Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, Bethan. Fuck off, Mark. Get on with this story. Okay, so um, so I am now going to the events of the night in question. So it's the 14th of July in 2001. It's hot outside and Peter Falconio is hungry. Joanne and Peter have been spending some time in Alice Springs, running errands before the next leg of their journey. Alice Springs is the third largest town in Australia's Northern Territory, with a population of around 24,000 people. It's equidistant from Adelaide and Darwin, pretty much slap fucking bang in the middle of Australia, located just off the Stewart Highway, which is quite a famous highway, and it's basically a 2,000-mile stretch of road that rips right through the middle of the outback. As evening sets in, Peter pulls the VW Combi into the car park of a Red Rooster fast food restaurant on the edge of Alice Springs. Most likely unbeknown to the couple at this time, they are in the murder capital of Australia. Alice Springs has been plagued by crime, racial divides and extreme violence and murder for decades. And these days tourists are warned to avoid visiting the town. There are numerous murders, rapes and assaults every year and when you consider the relatively low population of 24,000, that's pretty disturbing, isn't it? Mm. Alice Springs is one of the most dangerous places in the entire world. I hope I've not offended anybody that lives in Alice Springs. We will see what kind of messages we get after you've done that. As Joanne and Peter pull into the car park of the Red Rooster, Joanne notices that it's pretty empty. The couple enter the restaurant and Joanne feels the harsh air conditioning chill her bones. Peter orders and eats his food and the couple leave Alice Springs before heading north. Now, this visit to the Red Rooster is important and it might have been more than the air conditioning sending a chill down Joanne's spine as they walked through the door. And I will come back to this in part Mm. two, but that was the reason I kind of wanted to go into a bit of detail about this visit to the Red Rooster. In case you were thinking, what what are you on about? Yeah, it makes me a bit sad that she didn't eat. You know what I'm like? I always want to eat. I'm constantly eating. And then like he's sat there having some food and she's just sat there watching him. But she talks about that in a book and she says she was kind of into healthy food and it's mm. fast food. And she would have preferred to have kind of cooked something nice yeah. in the combi. And she had all sorts of different like herbs and spices and pasta and sauces. But obviously Pete just wanted his fast food. And yeah. if you want that, you want it, don't you? So they leave the Red Rooster, Joanne is driving and Peter is in the back of the van asleep. Joanne feels content, she is on an adventure with the love of her life and is happy that Peter is able to get some rest while she drives. As she approaches a petrol station, Joanne decides to stop to fill up. It's a remote petrol station, two rough looking men are hanging around outside and Joanne feels self-conscious as they stare at her. After filling up and paying, Joanne and Peter leave, with Peter now taking over the driving. It's dark now, and as Joanne looks out of the passenger window, something grabs her attention. She sees a fire burning at the side of the road. 
Peter wants to stop to put it out, but Joanne, suddenly overcome with fear, urges him not to. Fearing it could be a trap to ambush their vehicle, she keeps her concerns to herself, but she is suddenly very conscious of their vulnerability. It is dark, and I mean really dark, Mm. and they are now in the remote outback, heading north on the Stuart Highway, all alone. This is such a difficult one, because that could be an accidental fire, starts a wildfire, and you think to yourself, I should have just put that out, but I think she is completely right to worry about that. And when you say, you know, it's dark, it, it there's nothing around and there's no street lights. Like when one street light's out in the UK, you can really feel the difference on a road and there's nothing at all. So so at this point, I did want to say as well, I, I do wonder if this sudden fear that overcame her. So the thought that the fire could be a ploy to get them to stop, that suddenly she's feeling really vulnerable and they could be attacked and their vehicle could be ambushed. I wonder if it was some sort of premonition of the events that were about to occur. Yeah, or maybe. am I just being a bit too... Yeah, because I do believe in a sixth sense. I do. Like, I do think of, like, I've definitely had that when I've been driving and things like that. You think someone's going to do something and then they do that and you're prepared to then stop and you don't have a crash. Um, so, yeah, I could understand that. Yeah. It could well also be, though, that she now, after the fact, is thinking back at it and just thinks, oh, I bet that was why I felt a bit weird. And also they've come from the kind of relative safety of a big city. They've mm-hmm. come from Sydney. Yeah. So all of a sudden you're in the middle of nowhere and it would be quite a marked yeah. contrast. So it would be scary. Yeah, anyway. you would be a bit scared, I would guess. Yeah. Putting her thoughts to one side, Joanne and Peter are listening to music, planning their upcoming birthdays, which were both in September, just five days apart. And the conversation is in full flow when they suddenly notice headlights behind them. It's the first time that they have noticed this since they left Alice Spring some hours earlier. And that must be like, someone must be coming up quite quickly behind them as well, because surely you'd see that for ages in the distance. because it's pretty much a straight road, the Stuart Highway. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I suppose they were just like literally in full flow of conversation, not paying attention. You're so used to being on your own Mm -hmm. on that road that it probably does take a while to kind of realise someone's behind. Yeah. So the vehicle does pull up really close behind um, the combi van and Peter is actually frustrated saying to Joanne that he wishes the car would just overtake. Eventually it begins to and as it draws level the pair turn their heads to take a good look at the driver. Instead of overtaking the couple however the driver stares intently at them remaining side by side pointing at the back of the VW combi. Joanne gets a good look at the driver, the interior light is on in his 4x4, and she sees that he's in his 40s, has a moustache, and is wearing a black baseball cap. Next to him on the passenger seat is a dog. Concerned that there is something wrong with their camper van, Peter says to Joanne that they should pull over and take a look. She asks him not to, but he responds by saying that there's only one man, and there's two of us, we'll be fine. This is literally how every horror movie set somewhere in the wilderness begins. It really is, oh, isn't it? Oh, it's chilling. Peter pulls up on the left-hand side of the road. The white 4x4 that was following them now pulls up behind them. Peter gets out of the van and makes his way to the rear where he meets the other driver. Joanne, having moved across to the driver's seat, remains in the vehicle under Peter's orders where it's warm. She opens a door slightly to listen to what is being said. She hears Peter say, cheers mate, thanks for stopping. Peter comes back to the front of the van and reassures Joanne that everything is okay. The man has seen some sparks coming from the exhaust. He tells Joanne to rev the engine so he can go back and see for himself. Peter heads back to the rear of the van and Joanne revs the engine as instructed. 
She hears a bang and assumes the van has backfired. It has done that before, so she's not overly alarmed, just annoyed that they have broken down in the middle of nowhere. Holding her head in her hands, thinking about how they're going to get the van repaired in such a remote location, Joanne forces herself to snap out of her despair and sits up straight. Something tells her to turn her head towards the driver's window, and as she does, she comes face to face with the driver of the 4x4. Just inches from her face on the other side of the glass, the man stares menacingly at Joanne. A surge of fear races through Joanne's body. She knows all of her worst fears have come true when she sees a silver revolver in the man's right hand. It is pointed right at her. Opening the door, the man leans into the vehicle and tells Joanne to turn the engine off. Panicked, Joanne feels like everything is happening in slow motion and desperately tries to engage her brain and move her hand towards the ignition to turn the engine off as instructed. Frustrated at her slow fumbling, the driver pushes her hand out of the way and turns it off himself. Joanne's nightmare is just beginning. Join us next week for part two where Joanne runs for her life deep into the Australian outback on that cold, dark night as her attacker frantically chases her, armed with what I'm calling a triple threat, Mm -hmm. his silver revolver, his dog and a torch. What will happen to Joanne? What has happened to Peter? Will justice ever be done? All of these questions and more will be answered when we return next Wednesday. Thank you for listening. That was a very good ending to um hopefully to that's, part one. Yeah, that's hopefully it's kept you in enough suspense that you'll come back next I week. I think so, definitely. And obviously, in the meantime, you can get in touch in all of the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. So we've done, I think, probably four or five two-part episodes now. Do you think we've done that many? Yeah. I think, so. well, maybe maybe this is the fourth. We've done Claudia Lawrence. Mm. We've done the one what? recently. We did yeah, the Manchester the Canal Pusher. Pusher. But I can't think of any maybe others. Maybe that was it. Maybe this is only the third. Maybe. Hmm. So we've, we've done two or three, yeah. not four or five. Um, <laughs> let us know what you think of them, though. Let us know if you like them, split across two, or mm-hmm. whether you prefer it all in one episode. Definitely. It would mean a much longer episode. Yeah. We always appreciate feedback, though. Always Absolutely. very welcome. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. So we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.